Nathan had uh, mentioned some of these things in relation to this week's schedule. You know, with the, with the um, mentioned this last week with the mirrored services, Sunday school, we don't have combined Sunday school format anymore because with the mirrored service, it doesn't work. So today we have a guest speaker, and uh, Tom Dream was here back in, back in December. Uh, really looking forward to just getting to know him a little bit better, his ministry in London. Sharing with uh, Chris earlier this morning, just uh, he's he's um, they need to expand the facilities. Yeah, there's a building over here, 17 million pounds, because they don't have the money, obviously. He says, but there's a cheaper building over here, only five million pounds. We don't have either one, so I guess we might as well pray for the 17 million dollar one. There. <laughs> uh, so it, it's just a blessing to see the, how the Lord has blessed that ministry and uh, the needs there. So we'll be in prayer for that next week with the Truth and Light Conference. Um, same thing, there's no, there's no combined Sunday school. We would normally do that for our Truth and Light Conference, but given the format that we have, it's not, we're not able to, to work it out that way. So we'll have, we'll have um, classes as we normally do, uh, Sunday school as we, as we normally do. So we're gonna, next week I'm going to share a little bit. We're going to take this passage here and um, give a, a, a parental application to that next week because we're talking about grief and comfort and well, how does, what does that look like when you're raising your kids? The role of grief and the role of comfort. And what does godly grief look like in the, in the life of a child? How do you, how, and how do we uh, establish and help establish godly grief and then godly comfort in the midst of that too? So we'll, we'll do that next week once we kind of lay the foundation for that, for that this week. So looking forward to, to this evening. Put these guys on the spot. But the kings are getting baptized tonight with the, with the girls. There's nothing... There's two things. Baptism is always special because you hear the testimony. I had the blessing of reading them already. But then you see a family get baptized. Man, there's just something very moving about a family walking in truth. So looking for that tonight. We're also uh, will be – there's no adventure club tonight. We'll be doing uh, baptism. Tom's going to be sharing a little, little bit. And Clay Mackey will be installed as, a, as an elder. So busy, uh, busy evening as well. All right, so let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter chapter 7. We've, we're, this first section is finishing up here. Chapter seven is finishing his first, the first part of this of this letter. Eight nine is he's going to be talking about giving and the grace of giving, and he'll be sidestepping that and talking about that, and then he'll become on the second part of the of the book of the letter, rebuking those who have not repented. Here we had the godly repentance, and then there's those who are still um, opposed to the gospel that he'll the, the false with the super apostles, the way he labels them a little bit later. And he'll be addressing that in chapters 10 through 13. And so um, we're we're arriving at the end of of this first section of this letter. We looked at verse 14 of chapter 6 where he talked about not being unequally yoked. We talked about the the broad application of that and uh, not as primarily just simply not marrying unbelievers but not being yoked to the world and uh, being influenced by uh, by the things of the world. And then his admonition... In verse 16 of chapter 6, about we you know we're the temple of the living God, and then uh, we finished last week with with verse 1 primarily of chapter 7. We finishes the section here. Verse 2, we're going to read verses 5 through the end of this chapter here, is, a, is a, not 5 through 13 rather, uh, and we'll see some of the key elements that come out of this of this pattern. I'd, I'd like to highlight some of the things when you read a text. Some of it becomes obvious what he's getting at. Obviously, he talked a lot about grief in the middle of this portion here, but he starts with comfort, ends with comfort, and 
a number of, of observations here. Basically, how, how does one respond, the proper response of godly, what does godly grief look like? The outworking of that in verse 11 is our, is our landing point here uh, this morning. And we're going to define some of these words, take time to understand what we mean by, by grief, comfort, what it means to be downcast, and uh, his, 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 response, his response to that. So let's go ahead and read verses, begin in verse 5. Now he, he picks back up, by the way, here. He picks back up in his, what, we call, what they call his travel narrative. He left off his travel narrative in chapter 2, verse thir- 12 and 13, where he's describing his travels. Now he's picking that back up here in verse 5. For even when we, were, when we came rather into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn. Fighting without and fear within, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced uh, still more. So remember, he wrote a letter that grieved the church. He knew that it was a heavy letter. He had to rebuke them. He's going to comment on that in just a minute. So he did not know how they took it. You know, now today, by emails, someone will let you know in about 30 seconds what they thought of your email. Or uh, they'll let you know very quickly what they thought of your comment. Well, there, of course, long letter, had not seen Titus. So he's in, he's in agony because of his burden for the church. He's in agony knowing, man, how did they take this letter? It pained me to write this, but I had to tell them, man, you're, you're not doing well. He's rebuking them and for... Uh, I don't know if it's weeks or months, he's waiting for, man, how did they take that letter? Man, do they hate me now? Did they ever want me back? And Titus comes back with a positive report. They took it well. They repented, and so he's rejoicing in that. I mean, there's no greater joy, right? We talked about that. There's no greater joy in seeing his spiritual children respond well to this letter of rebuke. So that's why he's he's making this comment here about Titus, finally seeing Titus. <clears throat> so then he, he, he goes back to addressing the, the letter that he wrote, verse 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. Then he talks about here in verse 11 what it has produced. Produce what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the, in the matter. So although I wrote to you, <clears throat> it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong. In other words, there, in other words, even within the issue within the church and the offense that was caused, he says addressing the sin and addressing the need for rebuke it goes beyond beyond what beyond the person that was wronged, is or the one that suffered wrong or one that caused wrong. For the sake of the body, it was necessary to to address that. Uh, and goes in what who suffered the wrong but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God therefore we are are comforted you can get some final thoughts here in the end of chapter 7 we are we are comforted so <coughs> let me let me start with <clears throat> asking a few questions about 
defining these defining these words for us. When you hear the word grief, he obviously used that word many times. Uh, I think eight times in this passage. What does it mean? What is grief? What does it mean to, gr- to grieve? You, maybe you've never grieved before. Then someone else can help share share that thought with you. But what does it mean to grieve? To mourn a loss. To sorry. Mourn a loss. To mourn a loss. When you mourn a loss, you grieve. What else? What other translations do you have? Do everybody have the word grief there? Do you have a different? Sorrowful. Sorrow. To be sorrowful. So to be sorrowful, to be, obviously it conveys an idea of heaviness, obviously. You're mourning, you're grieving, you're, you're sorrowful. Um, grief is to make sorrowful, to be affected with, with sadness. And so, of course, he's going to address, you know, in looking at grief that he's going to address here, and specifically, what is he's going to contrast what godly grief looks like versus what worldly grief looks like? Meaning, the unbelieving world can grieve as well. They have they they feel sorrowful. Uh, they they have sadness. They mourn loss as well. But how do they how do they respond to that? And the response is a either godly grief response or a worldly response to that to that grief. We see in scripture the the expression being used a number of times. We talk about grief, whether it be uh, in Matthew Matthew 19, if you recall the parable of the rich man, the rich man grieved when he was told that he would have to abandon all his wealth, all his riches to come to embrace the kingdom and to, and to follow and be a disciple of Christ. Abandon all your wealth. He was sorrowful. He, he grieved, as the word being used there. Uh, we saw this term used back in chapter 2 already. So in our, in our text, in, in chapter 2, he was expressing to the church, uh, chapter 2, verse... Um, Three and four. Remember, he wrote. He says, "I wrote to you in this in the same letter." He said, "When I come to you, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice, which the, the grieving. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction, much anguish of heart, and many tears, not to cause you pain or grief or sorrow, is the word being used." But that lets you know that the abundance of love that I have for for you. So he talks about grief, this weightiness, this being a, this sorrowful. And then the other term he's going to use here in in verse six he talks about uh, but God, who what he comforts the downcast. What does it mean to comfort? So we, if we understand what grief means, to be saddened, to be sorrowful. To, to mourn. So what does it mean to be comforted? Because he starts out with the idea of being comforted, and God's going to comfort the downcast, one who is, who is drawn down, who's been humbled by grief, who's been humbled by events. So what does it mean to be comforted? First, I think I put down, yeah, I put down downcast first. Downcast is the idea of not rising far from the ground. I mean, you feel, you feel low, right? You feel down. We use that expression, I feel... I feel <coughs> I feel down. It doesn't mean I'm literally down, but I feel down because I'm, I'm discouraged. Uh, and not li- it means literally not rising far from the ground, brought down with grief, humbled by circumstances. Uh, one thing I think about when, when Mark, he's not here, I could talk about him, but Mark not being here, the struggle he has with the hip is not just physical, right? You start get, becoming downcast. You become weighted by 
that you're humbled by your circumstances, you know. Uh, you're, you're humbled by something that is painful and that is slowing you down, not allowing you to do what you want to do, and you get, you get discouraged from that. You grieve in that. And how do you, how do you respond to that is, is what we would like to, to, to see. What I would like to see is two things. One, for us to understand grief, grief is part of the, I'm going to say human experience, but it's also part of what draws us to Christ and what points us to Christ. I wrote down, and, and you, you've heard some of these, I would think that Paul expresses the, the weightiness of ministry, the grief he's experienced in ministry as well, uh, over, of course, he's excited about Titus giving the positive report, because why, why does Paul grieve in ministry? He grieves whenever he sees the unrepentant heart. He grieves when he said when somebody does not respond to, to rebuke or doesn't respond to the word and doesn't follow it in truth. I wrote down a few a few uh, examples of men who who address the who, who speak to being grieving. I, I say this because I don't. We sh- the point is not to spiritualize grief as if a believer should not grieve. You know, we shouldn't be down. We shouldn't be discouraged. We shouldn't be no. The the, the point being is how do we respond in a godly grief fashion? We grieve in a godly way that points us to to Christ. And the number of men that you would be familiar with, whether it be Spurgeon, he's well known for having gone through periods of great depression, being downcast, being, in, in his own words, Martin Luther as well. One, There's one <clears throat> story that speaks of, of uh, Martin Luther's wife, Katerina, when she entered his room dressed in mourning clothes. He had been... He had been downcast for a while he'd been discouraged for a while been grieving for a while and she walked in with mourning clothes and she started luther and and luther asked well who died she she replied well no one had but from the way you were acting i think god died (laughs) so (laughs) uh loving wife that's what you need in those moments is is a loving wife you know, that's why God gives us opposites, right? When one is depressed, the other person says, you know, get off the couch and get out and do something, you know, and you, you need that. And basically that's what he had in, in, in his wife. John Doan says that he calls depression the, he calls depression the damp of hell. <clears throat> I probably wouldn't use that expression today necessarily, but in the, in the olden days you could do that. Depression has been called the common cold of the soul, for sooner or later, most people catch it. Paul was obviously not immune to this. He talks about struggles from without and fears from within, so he, he's obviously not immune to that as well. The last one I put down is Philip Brooks. He says, To be a true minister to men is always to accept happiness and new distress. The man who gives himself to other men can never be a wholly sad man, but no more can he be a man of unclouded gladness. To him shall come with every deeper consecration of before untasted joy, but in the same cup shall be mixed a sorrow that it was beyond his power to fill before. Um, of course, I think every every one of us, as we not just as we live our lives, but as we serve the Lord, as we invest and pour into other people, particularly, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna feel that we're gonna have to fight that idea of being downcast, being discouraged, being saddened. And there are many things in life that bring us down. There are many things in life that, that cause us to grieve. A lot, a lot of us just grieve for the uncertainty of things. You know, boy, I tell you, if, you know, I mean, how many of you have read late, lately, you know, we're going to hit, the recession is going to hit this summer. 
Well, what does that do for you? I'm going to move all my stocks in a safe place. No, <laughs> I get no stock to move in a safe place. <laughs> Is there really a safe place anyway? And there's, there's, there's all, there's this constant wars and rumors of wars, calamities and rumors of calamities, downfalls and rumors of downfall, and the believers in the midst of that. And here, of course, here the church was, was rebuked for their behavior, and they responded, they were grieved by it. And, and Paul knows, I grieved them. But their response to that is going to be one that is going to, to uh, demonstrate the necessity of grief. So when I see grief, I, um, I see my own frailty, my own uh, being able to be tempted by uh, the same desires to be, to be sad, to be burdened, and to, to let that weigh me down and, and not use it in a way that's going to be a godly grief and bring me to a change, a repentance, and where I need to be. Of course, God also gave me my own Katerina and Jane, so she's uh, also one who doesn't get discouraged very easily and knows how to get me moving again as needed. I like what he says in verse 6. In verse 6, if I brought it here or not, I wrote down most of this. What I like in verse 6 is the, the narrative changes. When he says verse 6, he says, but God, you go from a, 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 a negative semantics to a positive semantics here in, in verse 6. He picks up by saying, he brings a conjunction here that shifts the sin of gravity to a positive tone. In other words, we were on this affliction and no bodies and no rest at every turn. And he shifts now over to what? But, but God. And I know that it's, it's, it's simplistic to say that, but boy, many of us can rejoice in the but God of Scripture. Uh, even, even last night, as, as Tom was describing the ministry and the challenges and the things to look forward to, boy, if you just plot things from a human perspective and you don't have the but God at the end, then you're left with only human answers. You're left with your own human frailty. You're left with your own... Uh, human insufficiencies, and so when you're when you're faced with the, the trials of a of a of a couple struggling and falling apart, well, the reality is, but God, but God, there is no answer. But God, there's only grief and mourning and loss and sadness. But but not for God, uh, our perspective would be not not what it what it could be or what it should be. He talks about comfort, right? But God, in verse six, look, but God who comforts the downcast. The blessing of this text is not to focus on being a downcast. The blessing is focusing on the comfort that comes from the Lord, and in this case, through the means of Titus and the news of, of this church. The idea of, of comfort is, in the Old Testament, uh, it's the idea of consolation. A lot of times it's being consoled. Uh, when you're mourned and you're sad, you're being consoled. In the New Testament, it's many times linked, of course, to God, the, the promises of Christ to bring a comforter. Right, the Holy Spirit being the comforter. And the same word used for the Spirit is used throughout the New Testament to describe comfort, which means to come alongside, to uplift, to support, to encourage. Uh, so, but God who comforts the downcast, um, comforts us by, by the coming of Titus. What a, what a blessing it is for us to know that we're not left, we're not left in our grief without, without a comforter. But I did point to an important element of, of what Paul, Paul what, what is Paul grieving for here? 
What is Paul? What is Paul grieving for? What, what brings him grief? Generically speaking, walking through the text, what what has been his source of grief? The church, persecution, the state of the church in that. What you don't see, and this is going to be key later on to godly grief. Godly grief comes from him. He's not. This is not self-pity on Paul's part. He's not grieving for, oh, it's not a woe, it's not a woe is me situation. He grieves for the lack of, of the gospel being impactful in the church. He grieves for a better reconciliation with the believer. He grieves for a desire to see the church and see God's people walk in truth. He grieves because his children walk in disobedience. He grieves. In other words, it's not, and what we're going to see is worldly grief is a self-centered grief. Worldly grief, the, the reason why there's a poor worldly grief is when we grieve over ourselves. Oh, woe is me. My, my boss at work is really terrible. It gives me a hard time. Oh, woe is me. You know, I, my car broke down. Can you believe that? The second time, and I bought a lemon. You know, woe, and our grief is not a godly grief. It's a worldly grief. It's a grief that is, self, that is self-focused and self-centered. That is not Paul's case, and that's going to be a big part of why he's able to respond in the way he does. So a few things to put down in relation to grief in verse 8, beginning of verse 8. And we build on these principles here. Verse 8 says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it. Well, he said, I regret it was painful, but I don't regret writing it. First thing I put down is grief is necessary. Paul needed to write this letter of rebuke. How many of us in here like to cause grief? If you do, Mark Hager has a counseling session available for you next week, no doubt. We, we should not take, take pleasure, right? We don't take pleasure in causing grief, though we do cause grief many times. So Paul is describing why. He said, Matt, I really, it really it troubled me. I know I called you grief, but I had to do it. Why? Because he, he loved them so that where he wanted to see them repent and change their ways. And we're going we're gonna, to, I, I didn't want to do all the parental applications now. I'm going I'm to pull this out next week and bring back parental applications to it to help us as we sometimes, you know, with our children, we always, it's like we, we're, we're afraid to cause grief. And yet there's necessary grief. There's necessary confrontation. Not for, the, for selfish purpose and motives, but because we care for, the, for their souls. So Paul, it says, takes no pleasure in grief. So he, doesn't, he didn't grieve them because he was frustrated with them. Like I, That would often be my cause. Right? I'll cause grief because someone caused me frustration, someone uh, because of disappointment, because of anger, because of unmet expectations. There's reasons why we cause grief, but that's not why he caused grief. He caused grief because of what they had done with the gospel. He calls grief because of his appeal to them to be reconciled with Christ. He calls grief because he appealed to them to not be out of step with, with the gospel. So he doesn't, re- he doesn't regret causing the grief, but he does regret that his, it caused such grief. Bray says it this way, a couple of comments here. He said, like a father who watches his son being operated on, Paul rejoices not for the pain being inflicted, 
but for the cure, which is the ultimate result. He had no desire to cause harm for his own sake. You know, it's like when James and Kim saw, you know, Kelsey, Chelsea um, go through that surgery. I mean, no one's thinking, wow, this is, this is a good thing. It's grieving, it's painful, it's, it's fearful, but the necessity of it because of the cure that it brings. And that's, what, that's Paul's admonition in this. Guthrie says the present happy state of the Corinthians corresponded directly to the unhappy confrontation carried out by the, their apostle. There's a lot, lot said right there, right? The present happy state of the Corinthians that they're experiencing now is directly corresponds directly to the unhappy confrontation carried out by their their apostle. Again, I'm like jumping across and all these parental the advice or, or um, counsel that applies to this as well. Second thing in verse that he just walked. I'm just walking through verse eight and nine. Right, the first part, verse eight. It was necessary. I mean, it made you grieve. I don't regret it. It was needed. But of course, I'm pained the fact that it grieved you. I like this as the, though only for a while. Right, the, the grieving was for a season. It was necessary for a season. Then he says in verse 9, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but what? Because you were grieved into repenting. Okay, so the point is not, the point is not just making you grieve. No, I saddened you. I burdened you with this. The, the, the point is what? It's to leading to grieved you into repenting. So the idea of repentance is what? The idea of repentance is... Change, change of heart, change of direction. The point is not grief to cause grief, but grief to cause repentance. Then, then he launches on, for you felt a godly grief. So godly grief, I put down two things. One, grief is necessary for repentance. Um, a lot of times I think that's, that's where we, the, the gospel has been truncated when we, we present a gospel on the basis of God's love without presenting the gospel on the basis of grieving for our sin. Grief is necessary for, for repentance, for a change, for a turning around, for a change of mind. Guilt, by implication, implies a, a reversal. In other words, you feel guilt, by implication, it implies a reversal of direction. I put down, be thankful that we have grief, because without grief, we would not have a turning around and change that is necessary. I'm, you know, be thankful when your children grieve. Sometimes we rush to our, 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 we rush to alleviate that grief. Oh, don't don't feel bad. Let them feel bad. Let them grieve. If you want repentance, we, we rush to avoid grief when in reality we should embrace grief that leads to to repentance there is joy in grief because it leads to repentance so you had to go through that moment of, of confrontation you had to go through that moment of grief because it was going to lead to to the joy that is felt in in godly grief i tell you there there's no there's something so moving and thrilling to see someone grieve and repent now grieve and then turns into worldly grief well, what does that look like? What does worldly grief look like in that case? Well, worldly grief is going to look like what? It's going to look like bitterness, anger. So now you're confronted, but your response is anger, bitterness, frustration. Godly grief 
leads to repentance, confrontation with truth, submitting to that, and consequently the joy that flows from that. So I said grief is necessary for repentance, and then I'm re- building just a little bit more on that. God, grief is godly when it leads to, to repentance. Grief is not a loss, but again, look at verse 10. So it says, for godly grief... Well, I'm sorry, I go back a little bit before. He says, For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. First of all, grief is not a loss when it gains repentance. Grief is not a loss when it gains repentance. Grief for the sake of grief is painful. But when grief leads to repentance, it is not a loss. Grief can be lost. And what I put down here is don't let, don't let grief go to waste. Don't let grief go to waste. I have seen many situations where someone's initial response to confrontation is somewhat being humble. And you know what happens? They go home, they think about it. It simmers. They start thinking, I don't know why he said that. I mean, now that I think about it, I didn't really do anything wrong after all. I mean, really, you know, if you told me, if you would have said it in a different way, I would have been more receptive to it. And you know, really, I didn't know anything about it. I don't know why it's my fault. It wasn't, I didn't really mean anything by that. And he could have told me sooner. And then the second time they come around, now they're fired up. Why? Because they, they, in their grieving, in their sadden, in their hurt, they, unfortunately, that, that golly grief was lost and it turned into a, a worldly grief that produced what it, what it does, bitterness. But now don't let grief go to waste. In your own life, in the life of your children, don't let grief go to waste. Let grief do its job of bringing repentance in our hearts and minds that lead us to Christ. Don't make excuses. Don't, don't minimize it. Don't, don't blow it off. Don't harden yourself to it. I don't know if there's a more dangerous place to be, even for a believer, when they're confronted and they're grieved for a moment. They let that grieving go to waste because their response to it is not one where they turn to Christ and and turn from their ways, but they start making justifications for it and excuses for it. Godly grief leads to to repentance. Verse 10, godly grief, what produces a repentance... That leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Of course, this goes beyond the idea of, of, of salvation from the point of view of being saved. It goes through all the way through the, the notion of godly grief produces sanctification as well. We see in Scripture, we see worldly grief. We see Esau, right? It says that Esau grieved with many tears when he lost his birthright. He didn't. He didn't respond well. He 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 responded with with worldly worldly grief, and, and we see that even described in Hebrews twelve. <coughs> worldly grief is lacking because it is centered on self. Worldly grief is a grief for oneself. It's a grief centered on self. In other words, you've got two people that are grieving for the same thing, and one responds with the godly grief, and one responds with the worldly grief. The godly grief is going to turn that person's heart towards Christ. The worldly grief is going to make them bitter because they're focusing on self and not focused on on the Lord. 
worldly grief is, is a regret for loss of money, regret for reputation, loss of reputation, loss of friends, uh, a kind of sorrow. I think I put down... I think I had another quote I don't have up here. <coughs> Bray, one of the commentators, says, only sorrow for sin is really is really profitable. Uh, just talking about the sorrow that leads to, to repentance. We see that in Beatitudes as well, Matthew 5. He says, well, blessed are they those who, who mourn or grieve. Blessed are those who grieve. For they shall what? They shall be comforted. Happy are those who experience grief over sin, and happy are those who agree with God about the evil in their in their own heart. Two other things, and again, building on that grief is at the heart of salvation. Repentance that leads to salvation. When we when we share the gospel with people, grief is part of what we're sharing. Grieving over sin, not just God is a wonderful God of love, but that love is understood when it's contrasted with the reality of our sin and how we're called to grieve over that sin. And that put down grief is at the heart of sanctification. What he's going to walk through here, I'm not going to take a time, I'll need to bring Hughes as a quote on this, but I was just going to skip that part. Look at verse 11, where we see seven fruits. Seven fruits of godly grief in verse 11. <clears throat> First one. So, right, he contrasts verse 10, godly grief, what it produces, and worldly grief, what it produces. Now he says for C, and he's talking about now for, for themselves, see what? The first thing he describes is see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. The idea of earnestness is they a response, a godly grief response is going to be one where there's diligence and care to this matter. In other words, a godly someone that has experienced godly grief is going to give due diligence to the matter. They're not going to be dismissive of the matter. The second thing he says in verse 11, produce eagerness to clear yourselves. What Indignation. I'm sorry, eagerness is the other one here, right? But also what eagerness to clear yourself. The, the opposite of eagerness is the idea of apathy or indifference. In other words, someone who has godly grief is not indifferent or apathetic to their sin or to their grief. They're not going to be dismissive of it and, and ignore it, but they're going to respond to it. What indignation? Still in verse 11. Indignation against... In this case, if you go back to chapter 2 where they had the sin that they were addressing in the church, indignation against themselves for supporting the offender, they no longer tolerated what they now see as sin on their part. Well, now they're indignant. Now they're, they don't tolerate what they tolerated before. So in godly grief, you don't, you're responding away by now. Godly grief, you're going to see someone that is earnest. They're going to have applied due diligence to the situation. You're going to see eagerness. They're not going to be apathetic. They're going to want to desire to prove their, 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 their um, in this case, prove their loyalty to Paul. In our case, of course, prove that we uh, are believers and demonstrate that in how we respond. And then indignation. They no longer tolerate what, what was acceptable before. is no longer acceptable. Then he says what? With what fear? Fear of God's judgment. In other words, godly, godly grief produces godly fear 
the person who responds in a worldly grief is is not fearful of giving an account to a righteous God. What fear? Then it says what? What longing? Longing expresses a new desire. What I long for? They have a new desire. Then what zeal? A new a new passion, a new energy. Now they're they're the they give a new passion and energy to doing what is right and what is true. And then he ends in this last uh, in verse eleven. What what punishment? A new <coughs> desire for just for justice. So what what you see in in the description of verse eleven is the Corinthians church's response that demonstrates that they had godly grief that turned to repentance, that they would change their ways and change their way of thinking and change their way of action. We see that in their diligent matter and how they address the issue. You see that with their eagerness. Uh, they're not indifferent, apathetic. You see that because they're indignant. They don't tolerate the sin that they once tolerated. You see that in their fear of God as opposed to a fear of man. You see that in their longing, new desires, and their zeal, new passions. And then a new desire for justice. The congregation had dealt with the evil during the church. Remember in chapter 2, Paul actually tells him, hey, don't, don't make him suffer too long lest, we, lest he falls into despair. So they had addressed the sin that once they had not addressed. So that, that is a, a glimpse in verse 11 of what, godly, what you would expect to see from someone who is experiencing godly, godly grief. Peter's denial of, of Christ and the rooster crow uh, is a really good picture of this. We, we see him denying Christ, and then when you look into Acts, in the first um, couple chapters of Acts, you see a complete change in him where, where all of these things line up. His, mm-hmm. his, um, his boldness, his zeal, all suddenly change um, for that. So I think that's a good example. It is. Yeah, you see a complete different Peter. Later. What I'd like to be able to do next week is we talk a little bit about about parenting and the role of grief and parenting is is looking for these signs in your children and that grief would produce this kind of response and how do we how do we walk through that? The last thing I, I would just say is he, he gives that last admonition in verse 13. He says, therefore, we are what? We are, we are comforted. I put down that um, simply that grief is foundational for comfort. Grief is foundational for comfort. It brought joy. There is joy that comes only from being uh, focused on others. The, the, the quote here says, imploded hearts... That is worldly grief, right? Imploded hearts can only conceive of comfort and joy in terms of enhancement of their own situation. Golly, golly grief is one where our hearts are, are drawn to, to him. It's, um, I guess what I want to do today, one, is, is realize, you know, we, we are, we're all going to be grieved sooner or later, one moment or another, if not weekly. But how do we respond? How do we respond to grief, and how do we let grief shape how we respond to that in a, in a godly grief fashion, uh, and, uh, and one that ultimately will bring joy? I put down that 
the thing about Paul is that Paul was not for Paul it wasn't it wasn't a question of being self centered, right? The grief that he experienced wasn't grief for himself about how he was mistreated, it was grief for the lack of reconciliation with the gospel and the lack of love that was demonstrated in that. I wrote wrote down a few thoughts. I think I'll save them for next week because it has a lot to do with parenting. But uh, hopefully give us tools, understanding godly grief, give us tools to not shy from grief in our children's lives, in our own lives, in the lives of our children, but how to produce godly grief is what we're going to be looking looking at next week in parenting. So, Father, we thank you that... We grieve. I thank you, Lord, that the Spirit of God brings us comfort. Without grief, we wouldn't experience comfort. Without grief, we wouldn't experience repentance. Without godly grief, we wouldn't experience godly comfort and godly joy. Lord, I I pray that as Paul is encouraged by the church, so would we, Lord, respond and and in a way that we would be encouraged by the times that we do grieve and that we would demonstrate what this verse 11 demonstrated, how this church demonstrated, Lord, a, a proper response to grief in a godly way, in a trusting way, in a repentant way. So, Lord, I, I, I pray for us, as no doubt we'll have many opportunities to put these into application in our own lives this coming week. Bless these family, Lord. Give them wisdom as they raise their children. Give husbands wisdom as they love their spouses and spouses as they love their husbands and lord may we rejoice and let the the word lord really impact our hearts today lord you name me pray amen so give robin a hard time today because it is her birthday and getting